Welcome to Three Little Things, a natural health podcast. We've created this space to help you positively navigate the world of holistic and natural well-being, where each week we will explore something new and dive into a diverse range of holistic health topics from all walks of life. As chiropractors, we are equally passionate about helping educate, share and empower you on your well-being journey. Created with you in mind, Three Little Things aims to bring you digestible topics and applicable tools and strategies to help you grow, thrive and live well. So let's dive in. Welcome to another episode on the Three Little Things podcast. My name is Sarah and I'm joined as always by my wonderful co-host Lily and we have a special guest today. Her name is Jess and we're going to get to Jess in a second but we yeah we love filming these or recording should I say these wonderful episodes and as we always kind of say these res- these episodes are a reference for all of our wonderful listeners around the world to jump in and learn something new, learn something different and think a little bit differently as well. Um, and today's episode is no different. So Jess, explain or introduce yourself to our, our wonderful audience. Well, thanks for having me, first of all. Um, hi, my name is Dr. Jessica Povel and I'm a physiotherapist practicing at Brain Hub in Gladesville in the North Shore of Sydney. I completed my doctorate in physiotherapy uh, when I was living and working in the US and I started my career at Spalding Rehab Hospital as well as Beth Israel Hospital in Boston. And it was through these roles that I became really interested in neurological in- injuries and trauma. Um, my my career's uh, taken me several places, one of which being New Zealand, where I spent over 12 years practicing with a multidisciplinary team there, focusing on concussion rehab and how we can help people who've sustained these kind of injuries. So I guess that's why I wanted to speak today on concussion in particular. Concussions gained a lot of media coverage over the last several years, as we all know. And I think this is really great as it's increased the public's wider understanding of concussion injuries. Uh, but it's, it's also been my experience clinically that patients who suffer a concussion often have really little understanding of actually what's going on in their bodies with these injuries and how these injuries have these wider reaching effects all throughout different systems. So I guess, yeah, that's why I wanted to come on today and talk about a few things that have to do with concussion. Specifically, first of all, a a head knock doesn't just involve the head. Um, It actually causes quite a bit of a disruption throughout the whole body. So today I want to talk about how this disrupts the gut as well as that autonomic nervous system. I also wanted to touch a little more on what dysautonomia is, specifically with POTS, so postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, following an autonomic nervous system disruption. And lastly, just also discuss some of the current treatment approaches that we do clinically to address POTS and inflammation following a concussion. So yeah, if we just jump right in, um, I thought we could just start high level with a little bit of science this morning. So um, yeah, as as I said, a head knock doesn't just involve the head. This happens as a disruption throughout the whole body. So um, with my patients, I feel it's really important to to help them understand that there's a lot more going on in the body than just, oh, my my brain is bruised. And I I hear this all the time (laughs) in the clinic. People say, oh, it's my brain is bruised, which which is a huge misnomer, actually. Um, This highly underrates the actual effect that the nervous system plays throughout the whole body, as we know. So concussion or mild traumatic brain injury triggers this pro-inflammatory response in the brain and also other parts. So if we start with the science and the microbiology of a concussion. So again, 
This is high-level stuff, but I figured for a Friday morning we can jump into a little bit of science here. (laughs) So if we talk about the microglial cells, these are the immune system gatekeepers of the brain. Um, So they're like our first responders to the brain. I had a patient once called them the the bouncers of the brain. I'm like, yeah, I guess so. I like that. (laughs) Um, But it's estimated that these microglial cells, they make up almost 10% of the total cells in the brain. So that's really quite significant. Um, And normally they help patrol the brain looking for danger, but... Uh, after we have an injury like a concussion, these can get activated and mobilized to signal other molecules like cytokines, which trigger that inflammatory response in the body. Um, so that local inflammatory response doesn't just stay local, but rather triggers that immune response, which is felt further along in the body. Um, So as I said, I've spent several years in New Zealand. And um, just to kind of use an analogy, in New Zealand, we talk about earthquakes and seismic activity quite a bit. So um, I've often used an example of a tsunami. So for example, when there's an earthquake in one part of the world, we feel movement and activity much further on. So an earthquake in New Zealand could cause a tsunami on the other side of the ocean. Um, This is a similar sort of thing, such as when you get a knock to the head, it can actually cause a change and a large effect much further away from the actual brain. So again, a knock to the head could again cause this wave of change that's spread all the way down to the gut. So in that case of concussion, that impact or force of the injury causes a shearing effect of axons in the brain, creating a chemical change in the cells, triggering the microglia, and to activate and change other parts of our gut immune system and onto our autonomic nervous system. So there's a lot going on. And I mm. feel it's, it's quite important for people to understand that it's not just my brain is bruised. <laughs> yeah. And I think even if people don't understand necessarily the you know specific cells mm. that we're talking about, I think just the concept of understanding that as you say, that wave, that flow-on effect is yeah. massive throughout the entire body is the important part, right? Mm, absolutely, absolutely. And and I think it helps people understand why they feel the symptoms mm. that they do then um, yep. and, and why a concussion can cause someone to feel so rotten in a lot of ways. So another thing I like to do clinically with with my patients is discuss that concussion isn't just that initial impact. There's actually two phases of a concussion. So the first phase of a concussion is that excitatory phase that happens really locally in the head. So it's a chemical reaction that happens. And um, if I can use the example of when we've, we've all watched sport on TV at one point or another, and you see somebody who's unfortunately had a hit and the camera zooms in on them and they can see them and they look confused or slurring their speech. They might be off balance um, and they may even have had a loss of consciousness, which actually isn't as common as people think with concussion. People think, oh, lose consciousness, that's a concussion. No, not at all. In yeah. fact, 90% of concussions don't have a loss yeah, of consciousness. And I, just on that, I feel like people yeah. downplay a head knock yeah. or a head injury yeah. a lot because they go, oh, well, it mustn't be a concussion because I didn't lose consciousness. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But again, huge misnomer out there. Yeah. Um, and so that that's that initial phase, that, that initial stuff that we see when someone has sustained that injury. But that second phase of concussion, that's that spreading or depression phase, as we call it, where people have those ongoing headaches, fatigue, poor concentration, persistent um, symptoms such as anxiety. They can have mood changes, sleep issues, the works. So Mm. um, yeah, it's important to understand that our body's hard at work at a cellular level, 
trying to deal with this injury. And I guess for those who really enjoyed biology back in school, <laughs> they may recall the term ATP or adenine triphosphate as being the energy that our cells use. And so following a concussion, it takes an awful lot of this ATP to actually settle things down and get those cells back in balance. So um, that can explain why people have these ongoing effects. Mm. And can I quickly jump in here because yeah. you did mention New Zealand. So there's a whole yes. bunch of people there visualizing the All Blacks versus oh, Wallabies you know, and people sobbing. Um, but the thing is, um, and also because I'm a pediatric chiropractor, yeah. I see um, kids trying to be a Wallaby. Yeah. I want to be a Wallaby or an yes. All Black from the age of, say, five yes. to whenever. And all these things you're talking about, Jessica, mm. um, relates to their little brains mm. and bodies and how they end up growing into mature adult um, yeah. people, you know, males and females in their 50s and 60s. Absolutely. And as you say, um, all these brain changes actually mm. become apparent decades yes. down the line. Absolutely. Yeah. And Absolutely. then, as you had mentioned, the second phase, the spreading mm. or depression phase, mm. is so masked by lifestyle drugs. Mm. Yeah. You know, that's when people start to take their neurofins and their yes. panadols and their antidepressants. Yes. So, yeah, I'm really yeah. quite keen to hear what happens next. Yeah, <laughs> no, certainly, mm. certainly. Um, so, yeah, I think it's good to just kind of discuss all the different um, intracellular changes that are happening in the body. And I guess one thing that's gained a lot of popularity recently in the literature is magnesium. So we know that a lot of people are magnesium deficient anyways at baseline. But after a concussion, um, we know that there are changes to the magnesium levels in the cells. And so one, um, well, not one, several studies have actually been done out of the US um, looking at whether we preload magnesium for, again, these, these kids and adults who are playing these high-risk sports, should they sustain an impact? Would this either lessen or prevent a concussion if you're already at a high level of mm. intracellular magnesium? Oh, and um, yeah, it's it's really interesting stuff. It's promising, but I mean, it's only one piece of the puzzle and no one is out there saying that, yes, this will actually prevent a concussion. Yeah. Um, but certainly interesting considerations out there. Mm. Um, and as we know, magnesium holds so many beneficial um properties just with lots of different cellular function especially with the nervous system so yeah, yeah for sure yeah so yeah again if I can go back to that tsunami analogy just for a minute so in the event that the brain does have these further reaching um, capacities to the gut and the autonomic nervous system I think it's it's pretty remarkable how all of these systems work together and how one localized area of inflammation can just disrupt everything else um, as it travels down you know the gut brain axis and down to the microbiota of the gut as well um, so if we move on and talk a little a bit about the gut um, one fun fact about the gut is that there's more nerves in the gut than in the spinal cord and the rest of the body combined so there's that's a lot like mm -hmm. I, I was really blown away by that so I had to check that a couple of times I didn't believe it but um and also just to get an appreciation for the amount of good bugs that we've got in our gut so um, a 70 kilo person has around the same size weight and mass of bugs as a moderate size mango so if you think about the size of a mango that that's a lot if that's mm. all just good healthy bugs for us so um as we know our gut makes most of our serotonin as well and over 80 percent of the fibers in the gut are sensory and they go to the brain so it's super important um probably often why we refer to our gut as our little brain or mm -hmm. our second brain so um so as the gut or excuse me as the brain signals this inflammatory response uh the gut is one of our next responders to that concussion injury so we know that um through literature our gut permeability has um, been shown to 
to change as a result of this concussion. And it starts within that first six hours after a concussion and it can last for seven days. So I think this is why it's so important with our patients to be able to stress to them the importance of what are you eating? What are you doing? How do we impact that gut positively following these initial injuries? Because that's that's when it's all happening. This increase in permeability to the gut also allows for that further transmission of inflammatory signals and stimulating the vagus nerve pathways. So obviously we know a lot more about the vagus nerve now than we used to and how critical it is for body function. So um, that vagus nerve being our 10th cranial nerve has that interface with the heart and the lungs as well as the gut. So this Mm. feedback loop is critical. So as a disruption, I guess, to that vagus nerve pathway, the autonomic nervous system then gets disrupted. Um, And I know and in several of your previous podcasts, you've discussed how that autonomic nervous system is made of those two branches, the parasympathetic and the sympathetic pathways. Mm. So if we've got these sort of injuries going up and down the body, causing inflammation, we know that the sympathetic and parasympathetic pathways can be all out of whack as well. Yeah, certainly. I know we're talking about a few specific structures here, but it's also worth noting that um, the HPA axis, so the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, as also the endocrine system really get disrupted as well with concussions. So there's just so much going on. I know with your practice as with our practices, um, we're big into the post-concussive diet as well. So um, that might be another podcast. (laughs) It's so good to do to discuss that though, I think with our patients, because they, they they come to us, they want relief from the symptoms, but we have to discuss how lifestyle factors really play into that too. So yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess if we dive then into the dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system, such as dysautonomia and POTS, um, the prevalence of POTS is estimated to be anywhere from seven to 12%, depending on the study you read following concussion. Um, and it's most common in young women and adolescents. So POTS is defined by that inability of the autonomic nervous system to regulate the heart and um, often produces this tachycardia or an increased heart rate with positional changes um, or light exertion. So for example, if someone without POTS uh, goes from sitting to standing and then walks up a flight of stairs, they might have an increase in their heart rate to say 90 beats per minute. Um, But someone with POTS might have a much higher spike much quicker. So they might jump to 140, 160, or even higher. Um, I've seen people jump to up to 200 for doing Mm. literally nothing. Um, And so this mismatch can be really debilitating for individuals as their autonomic nervous system is disrupted. This regulation of the autonomic nervous system is way more than just our brain and our vagus nerve, but also the sensory input that our brain receives from our vestibular system and coordinating all of this stuff in our brainstem and the higher centers of our brain. So, um, yeah, based on the physiology of concussion and what we know, these multi-system impacts are huge Mm. and we really do need to screen all of these systems following a concussion and I think it's so interesting when we look back on what we used to do to manage concussion and POTS so um, oh it just makes me cringe to think what (laughs) what we used to do in the past so um, we used to tell people oh you've had a concussion stay on bed rest be in a dark room lie down until you feel better but we now know that this really negatively impacts the recovery of that nervous system Um, it, it really unfortunately used to acclimate the brain to that supine position, minimizing gravity. And, you know, gosh, just think what it used to do to our vestibular and oculomotor systems as well, just being in these low, late, low state of stimuli. So Mm. it's great that we've now moved on from that. And now we know that we can address some of these 
um, dysautonomias through a very targeted and gradual exercise approach where we can closely monitor their symptoms and how they're responding and not push them too far, but also still step-by-step step challenge that nervous system to recover. Um, I guess I'll, I had a patient early on in my career who, oh, she sustained a concussion. She was she was playing soccer and she had a, headed the ball a couple of times in a game and um, finished the game, no loss of consciousness, nothing like that. But in a couple of days, she developed some concussion symptoms and um, it just it just spread from there and she did go on to develop what we suspected to be POTS and at the time I wasn't working in a clinic where we had a tilt table um, so we just did the active stand test, suspected that she might be having some POTS and we sent her off to a, a cardiologist for a formal diagnosis and yeah, it, it in turn she did end up having POTS. Um, and it was really tough for her because she she couldn't stand up to watch her kids' sporting events. She couldn't walk up the stairs at home. Going to the supermarket was a huge challenge for her. Um, she would faint. She would feel unwell. It was yeah, everything was really challenging. But bit by bit, um, we supported her with a really progressive exercise program. And I'll I'll never forget the day she texted me when she ran her first five k again. So it was it was awesome just to see how you know people can recover from these, and it, it can be challenging for them as well as clinicians, but we can get there. Mm. So, yeah. Mm. Really just quickly here, there was a research paper quite a while ago now, maybe two years, when mm. um, they were looking at the incidence of concussion and whiplash and yes. the populations of um, athletes who, yes. who got it. So, Absolutely. naturally, people thought um, American rules football because they're wearing all that gear. Yeah. So, their heads now become a battering ram. Yeah. But what really got me was the second most populous um, sports person that was mm. soccer, but girls soccer. Yes. And they yes. said... Are two things. One, because when girls got to hit the ball, mm. they blink. Right. So there was slow-mo video yes. of women um, hitting the ball and they closed their eyes momentarily, yeah. number one. And number two, because their neck structure is so mm. much more delicate. Absolutely. So with the Matildas you know, doing their thing right now, I think it's quite mm. topical to, to it actually is. say to a lot of the young um, girls you know, on the, um, on the field, they... I mean, regularly get checked anyway, but especially if you're hitting yes. the ball so hard. Yeah, mm. absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And, and just those differences that we're finding in the literature between men and women, and as you say, just women have uh, narrower necks mm. and, and we just don't have the muscle mass around there that, that men sports players do. Um, and it is interesting now that they're, they're looking at different approaches with does a neck strengthening protocol mm. actually help us prevent concussion? And while it strengthens the neck... They have found that the best thing to actually prevent a concussion is to see that impact coming. And if you can't see the impact coming, can the neck actually fire fast enough and respond to prevent that kind of reverberation mm. of force going through the head? But um, yeah, you're so right. It's very topical, especially right now um, yeah. with the Women's World Cup and everything. I think yeah. like on the soccer example, we've got lots of patients that play play soccer. And there's been lots of conversation, more so in the young boys. I've been having this conversation, but, you know, it translates to the women of uh, disallowing head, head um, mm. headers in as a, you know, a rule, yeah. so, I, I guess, to a certain age. And I was chatting to a patient's dad recently and we were discussing the pros and cons of this because, yes, okay, it might lessen what they're able to do in the game, mm. but young boys particularly are rebelling against that, going down to the park with their mates yeah. of a Sunday and doing it anyway. So oh. now we're not teaching kids how to properly head of the ball, right. telling them they can't do it, and they're going and doing it anyway, probably oh. in a very incorrect way. Yes. So I understand the theory behind wanting to discourage 
you know, mm. these headers because of the whole concussion mm. thing. But is that the right way to go about it? Wow. Because are they then just going to do it poorly? Exactly. You know, there's exactly. and, and it was quite an interesting conversation. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and at what point do we do we start changing the element of the sport? That's it as well. Yeah, so, you know, and could we more? be more doing like more about these lifestyle changes and these prevention mechanisms yeah. and learning yeah. how to cope with it properly mm. versus just you know good yeah. point because you know you say the word can't to a kid and, and they're gonna like, do well anyway. you know <laughs> guess what so, so uh, yeah. let's create the boat on which to float this whole yeah. idea as you say the magnesium the prevention mm. the fitness yeah. the vestibular exercises the eye movement yes. the reaction times and then you know post injury mm. these things to do yeah exactly yeah absolutely anyway yeah. absolutely no no it's it's all really interesting just in the how sport has taken the mm. you know all this information and how we collate it but um yeah so i guess the the third little thing that I wanted to touch on today was that further assessment and treatment can certainly be done to manage things like POTS and that inflammation um, should someone sustain a concussion. So um, like we were talking about, we know that that communication between the hypothalamus of the brain and the autonomic nervous system control provides information from the brain from a top-down perspective and bottom-up as well, um, just for the different functions of the body, for our heart and our lungs. So in a clinical setting, like I was mentioning before, um, we can test for some of these imbalances through a tilt table test, um, as well as heart rate variability, which I know heart rate variability is getting a lot of attention these days, and it's so important, and it's it's a great tool that we can use clinically, absolutely. So I guess... Heart rate variability is something um, that a lot of listeners might be aware of, especially through the the recent use of wearable technologies. There's smartwatches and rings and all sorts out there that um, can somewhat measure the differences in between your heartbeats. So um, a heart rate variability is a millisecond measurement between one heartbeat to another. And we look at this variability to see how the body responds to simple breathing or postural changes. So um, a high degree of variability reflects the body to be able to adapt well to stressors. And this translates into other areas of health and well-being as well. So this this has been applied to mental health. It's been applied to physical conditioning and training and recovery, um, not just neurological conditions as well. So it's, it, yeah, it's got a wide range of uses. Um, and I guess when we notice someone has a low degree of heart rate variability, it could also indicate whether imbalances with the autonomic serve, autonomic nervous system are present. But it's I guess it's worth noting that this is just one piece of the puzzle. Um, so if someone does find out that they have a low degree of heart rate variability, it's it's not the end all be all, but it is certainly something we as clinicians would take into account. Absolutely. Um, but I guess it is worth noting that. From a clinical standpoint, um, measuring heart rate variability in the clinic is still the gold standard over what we can do with our phones and watches and things like that at home. Um, but treatment for POTS or other deficits of the autonomic nervous system certainly need to be tailored through the use of these tests, through the use of a gradual exercise program, um, and and working along some alongside someone who understands what happens when the heart rate goes up too much and what kind of flow-on effects that could have for that person and their recovery. And like I said before, with, with my example of the patient I had in the past, it can really be a challenge for patients, but it can be rehabbed and people can get back to exercise and sport and they can get through this, which mm. as a clinician, I find that really rewarding to yeah. see. 
Um, I guess other factors that also need to be addressed with treatment would be educating patients on what they can do to manage their inflammation. So, yeah, just like you were saying, Lily, I know there's there's so much out there and in us as clinicians being able to be the ones that educate them on, no, it's not just do these exercises. I really want you to look at anti-inflammatory foods. Like, can you can you do things to reduce uh, our other environmental inflammatory things that we're exposed to these days? You know, could we take a look at caffeine and alcohol and especially processed food, you know, the white breads, the, the ultra-processed stuff that's out there, um, things that are defined now as having over five ingredients or coming out of a package. I mean, that's that's <laughs> the definition of an ultra-processed food these days. So what, what can we do as clinicians to give people the best chance of dialing down this inflammation in those early days, especially in that early initial seven or so days following a concussion? Um, and then for those who have gone on and unfortunately developed post-concussion syndrome, which used to be defined as having symptoms for 40 days, but I actually was reading an article just the other day, and it was saying now it's closer to that 20-day mark. So if you've got symptoms that have gone on for 20-ish days, um, you commit meet the criteria for PCS. And we really need to hone in then on what we can do from a lifestyle perspective to manage that inflammation for Mm. you. So yeah, so just lots of different factors clinically, not just exercises, but a lot of advice and and working with people on their day to day. People like numbers though, Jess, you know, so if it was a keen little kid who was 14 wanting to make Mm. the rugby team or play the grand final, I mean, uh, what's the minimum number of weeks you'd like him, her to sit um, on the bench? Oh, goodness. Well, we, mm. I guess the take home is take him out of play immediately. If they yeah. had a concussion, take him out of play, mm-hmm. get him checked as soon as possible. Yeah. So get him in front of a clinician who can look at all of the, the different systems. But um, And then we need to do a stage progression back to play. So everyone's going to be really different on this. And mm. it's, it's heartbreaking when they say, I've got a game on Saturday. That's and it's right. Tuesday. And you're like, mm-hmm. ugh. But um, the research does say if you have symptoms, do not play, especially a contact sport mm. yet. But how do we gradually get them into non-contact practice? How do we keep them with the team? How do we keep them in that social setting yeah. without putting them at risk of a second? Yeah. We've got a local medic we work with who's also yeah. a concussion expert. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a bit of clout, but yeah. still difficult, huh? Oh, very mm-hmm. difficult. Certainly yeah. very difficult. Yeah. Okay. And then you kind of run into that idea of... Um, people like children athletes yeah. not disclosing what may have actually happened yes. Yes. with the risk of them knowing that they're going to be pulled from their sport absolutely. Yeah, i know absolutely. don't tell mum. that's yeah. this is it yeah absolutely yeah. absolutely and, and it's even gone further now with those who um those teams that do baseline testing before mm-hmm. the season starts and i mean there's been mm-hmm. studies where kids kind of I throw know, it a bit they throw they the baseline it. testing so that if it's they do, almost cute isn't it i know i know they're just anyway. they're so dedicated they're so dedicated <laughs> to the sport to their own detriment okay. but yeah it's hard it's hard protecting mm. you know the mm. These little brains. These little brains. Yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah, so I guess just to kind of sum up my three little things that Please. I talked about. So um, I feel there is a real connection between um, the brain as well as the rest of the body and the literature backs this up time and time again. So it's really important for patients to understand that a head knock is not just a head knock. It has much further reaches through the rest of the body mm. um, and also what these possible changes and disruptions can lead to with 
regards to inflammation, the autonomic nervous system, and even the potential development of POTS. Um, and then also just that thirdly, we can address this clinically. So if you or someone you know has had a concussion, but there's certainly many clinicians out there like myself who can do a tailored program to help address these symptoms. So, mm. yeah. Amazing. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. A quick disclaimer, these episodes are not intended to replace help, treatment or advice from your healthcare professionals. The information in today's podcast is purely for educational purposes and is not designed to diagnose or treat any conditions. This is just a friendly reminder that we do not know you or your child or those around you and therefore do not know your specific needs. Please seek guidance from your healthcare professionals surrounding your concerns.